Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calf have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went outside into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, few are chosen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you in this hour to uh, teach us, to instruct us, uh, to change us as we have formerly prayed that, Lord, you would use your word and dispatch your Holy Spirit, that we would not only learn uh, cognizantly, Lord, but that uh, our wills would be changed, that our wills would be bridled, that we would be made uh, more fit for uh, heavenly citizenry, which you have called us to, O Lord. So prepare us, O Lord. Prepare us for this feast that awaits in our future. And we ask that you would prepare us even now through, uh, through your word. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. We now come to the uh, conclusion of Jesus' third parable that is spoken really to his challengers. And in this parable, Jesus speaks of a great feast that a king put on for his son. And, uh, you know, with every passing hour, uh, we inch just a little bit closer to the day when the last guest will be brought in uh, and this ceremony will actually begin. Uh, that's really a wonderful thought, isn't it? That we're 24 hours closer to this day right now than we were uh, yesterday. Uh, nothing is spared. I mean, the menu is full of the choicest of morsels. And uh, the Lord will use his, his powerful, creative activity uh, to honor his son at that feast. When we look out at the world and we see how wonderfully uh, adorned some of God's creatures are and some of the things that God has created, created uh, are, we see his creative uh, activity and power. Uh, and we can almost imagine how beautifully decorated this wedding supper is going to be. Uh, in our sinfulness, we're able to put on quite a spread. But imagine what this is going to be like. 
The holy angels will be uh, present uh, proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The floors are undoubtedly going to shake at the sound of their voices. And the, the, the believers and the saints who have gone before us, as well as all of those who call on Jesus' name, we're going to be singing with voices that uh, earthly ears have never heard. Donald and I were talking. I was wondering what kind of voice I'm going to have. You know, I kind of sing off the floor right now. Maybe I'll get a voice up in the... Maybe I'll have a high soprano voice. Who knows? I don't even really care. What I do know is no earthly ear has heard it. And the, the melodies that we're going to sing are melodies beyond what any human composer could possibly write. It's really wonderful. The food will be full of soul, refreshing and, and, and nourishing um, to our bodies. We're not going to be counting calories at the table. Our, our, our minds and hearts are going to be expanded. Um, it, it, you know, I, as I said last week, it does us a lot of good to, to think about these things, to contemplate these things. Uh, we do well to meditate on these things and fill our hearts and minds with these things because as we do so, this is a great antidote to keep us on the line. We're so prone to wander off the line, off to the left, off to the right. And a great antidote to get us back on the line is to meditate on these great promises, to meditate on the furnishings of these great promises, to meditate on, on where God has taken us and where we're headed in Christ Jesus. And when we focus our mind's eye like this, uh, those fleeting attractions of this world, uh, they do grow dim, don't they? Uh, they really do. I mean, they grow quite dim as we gather together in, in these gatherings and we open up the, the Word of God. They, those things grow dim. Uh, so we've got to keep our hearts and minds fixed on these things. The second thing that we, that we looked at last week was the invitation. I mean, all weddings have an invitation. Who would think of putting on a wedding and not... Uh, inviting anyone or putting on a wedding and not sending out uh, invitation when when we uh, 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 when we have these when we come to these special occasions uh, things that are very special to us like that we want our loved ones to be with us don't we uh, who do we who, you know who do we invite whenever we have an occasion like this we invite those who are closest to us we invite those who we love the most dearly <laughs> And that, that, really, uh, that really magnifies this. Uh, uh, last week we saw that the king's servants in the parable who were out gathering were God's ministers. And uh, in the New Testament economy, uh, those servants are everyone who shares the gospel message. Uh, so all of us who are out sharing the gospel message are giving the invitation to uh, this wedding banquet, to this uh, uh, this wedding hall, if you will. And we saw in the, in the parable that this invitation, you know, it went out to many, but many answered it with indifference. We saw that some answered it with hostility. Uh, but praise be to God uh, that some received it with joy, didn't they? Some received it with joy. And they went into the banquet as they received it with joy. And it is into uh, that banquet that we go this morning. Uh, all of the guests have been brought in as we get to verse, uh, verses 11 and following. And now the king enters into uh, the parable. And this is the high point, isn't it? The entrance of the king. That's the high point. There he is. How the mouths will be 
stopped and the hearts will stop as, as he enters in. And there's, we should stop right here and make application right now. I mean, hopefully as we examine our hearts this morning, that's really what our faith is all about. It's about the King. It's about the Lord. Right? And, and I pause for this because it's really easy for us to be all about what the Lord does for us. Because He does so many things for us and He does so much. So the things that He does for us are so marvelous that it's easy to get caught up in the things He does for us. Uh, and, and then we can find that uh, our hearts are not really on the King Himself. You know, many folks have walked with the Lord for many years uh, in the church and uh, only to discover uh, that they, they, you know, when the Lord finally called them to it, they, they, they found little or no love at all for the Lord Himself. Uh, once in a while you'll hear a testimony like this where a person will be honest enough to tell everyone who will listen, you know, I walked with the Lord for many, many years uh, only to discover one day that I really didn't have any love for the Lord. I, I didn't love the Lord. I, um, it's easy to fall in love with the music. It's easy to fall in love with fellowship. It's easy to fall in love with the fact that you belong to a group of people. We all want to belong to something. It's easy to even fall in love with church work. Yeah, very easy to do where you get busy, you know, and you fall in love with that work. Uh, you can fall in love with studying the Bible uh, where you, you just love to study the Bible and you love to mine the truths out of the Bible um, and actually not be in love with the Lord himself. So I pray that this morning uh, that God will use this message to fan uh, our love for the Lord into flame, that, um, that it might grow, that we would truly see that at the entrance of the king into the banquet hall is really the high point uh, of the wedding supper. Now in verse 11, the king enters into the banquet hall to look at the guests. I mean, look at Look at the honor and the privilege it is to be invited to something like this. Uh, he comes in to look at the, at the guests and he notices a man that has no wedding garment. Uh, and he says to him, friend, how'd you, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And how does the man respond? You know, he, he's completely silent, isn't he? He doesn't have anything to say at all. Then the king orders his attendants to bind him, throw him into outer darkness. Now, it's this scene right here in verses 11 through 14 that I really want to take up in this message. You know, the, the king here finds a crucial problem with one of the guests. And the problem is he's lacking a wedding garment. And I think the first question that we should be asking here this morning is, what is this wedding garment? Because right, we can see the importance of this wedding garment, can't we? The man doesn't have the wedding garment and he's thrown out into outer darkness. And as soon as we ask the question, what is the wedding garment? I mean, there's other questions that quickly follow that. You know, I think that as we ask the question, what is the wedding garment? We're asking ourselves the question, do we have the wedding garment? Um, we might even ask the question a little bit differently and say, how can we know if we have the wedding garment? Um, another question uh, that, would, that would arise in all of this is if we discover that we're without the wedding garment, uh, how do we obtain a wedding garment? Uh, because we can see the importance here uh, of the wedding garment. Well, let's, let's start with the first question. You know, what is the wedding garment? 
Now, you know, as I've said many times before, you know, one of my goals as a preacher and a teacher of God's Word isn't just to stand here and give information. One of my goals is actually to teach how to study the Scriptures so that we can study the Scriptures for ourselves. And when we're trying to answer questions like this, uh, there are three things that are really important. You've heard me say these three things before. At least most of you have. We've got a couple that haven't. Uh, three things. They're context, context, and I'll let you know what the third one is. It's context. It's pretty easy to remember. Context, context, and context. Now, through the course of this, I've been making a lot of noise uh, about the fact that Jesus is addressing his challengers. I want us to see that these three parables that Jesus is, that is, is preaching here in this little group, uh, he's still speaking to the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and the Pharisees who are challenging his authority back in chapter 21. Uh, so it's important that we know this because that helps us understand what the purpose of this is. We need to understand the purpose of Jesus' uh, parable. Uh, those who are challenging his authority aren't interested in the truth. They're suppressing the truth with their own agendas. And what's Jesus doing? He's forcing them to confront the truth. And he's doing this uh, by way of these parables. And the second consideration, which is really important, is we need to consider just who these individuals are. Who are these folks that are challenging Jesus' authority? Uh, they're not uh, uh, paganists here. Uh, they're not Baal worshipers. Uh, they're not worshipers of Greek and Roman gods. They're the leaders uh, in Jerusalem. They're the, the religious authorities uh, in Jerusalem, aren't they? And uh, many of their followers who are following them. In other words, I say all this so that we see that these are not folks who are outside the church. They're folks that are inside the church. This battle that's going on here is not outside the church. It's going on inside the church. Jesus' authority is being challenged inside the church. And thirdly, these people that are challenging Jesus' authority are considered to be the very men of God in the community. The very men of God in the community. I mean, among them were the Pharisees. Well, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And we just read a passage from Philippians where he talked about his former life as a Pharisee. He was blameless as per the letter of the law. Uh, these men were very meticulous in following all of the details of the letter of the law. And among the company of the challengers were also the scribes. Uh, they were the ones who would hand copy uh, manuscript after manuscript. You know, if we were planning a church in the first century and we needed Bibles for the seats, uh, we wouldn't be able to just simply call CBD or Westminster Bookstore. We'd have to go see the scribes. And the scribes would be in rooms like this one where there would be a group of scribes and there would be a, another scribe and they would all be working on uh, copying these manuscripts. They had to copy them by hand. Now, in the people's eyes, I mean, who, who knew the Word of God better than the Pharisees who followed the Word of God uh, to the letter of the law and those who actually copied uh, uh, the Bible word for word who knew the word of God better than them and yet here they are 
challenging Jesus' authority. This makes us think about uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which was so long ago. Some of you weren't even here when we were. Uh, we spent almost a year, I think, on the Sermon on the Mount. And during that time, it made a lot of noise about uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, in a few weeks, we're going to be in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel. And some of you will recall in your reading of Matthew that Jesus pronounces seven woes there. To who? Uh, to the Pharisees, to these religious leaders who are challenging uh, Jesus here. Um, so we, we're starting to see, I'm, I'm developing all this so that we can see how these parables fit in the grand scheme of things here. Uh, you know, these, uh, these religious leaders, you know, they weren't practicing what they preached. They loved the benefits of religion, but they didn't love the Father who was in heaven. Yeah, they have the outside all cleaned up, but on the inside, they're rotten to the core. And all this is to say that what's in view here really is an empty profession of faith. An empty profession of faith. Uh, quite common in every generation. Um, they're professing to be the men of God when in reality they're still among the world. It's a pretty scary thing, isn't it? Uh, they profess to believe with their lips, but their hearts are far away. In other words, they don't have a wedding garment. Conversely, the one who has the wedding garment is the complete opposite of all of this. It's the complete opposite. The wedding garment symbolizes a life that has truly been touched by the grace of God. You know, it's symbolic of a life that has really had the hand of God, uh, where the hand of God has touched uh, that life. Um, it's a change that takes place from the, from the inside out, not from the outside in. You know, all week long I've been thinking about how I was going to develop this imagery. And I, you know, I toyed. I didn't write it into the notes, but I, I toyed with using another mark that we find uh, in Scripture. And it's called the mark of the beast. And uh, the book of Revelation, we're told about that 666, you know. And there's a lot of fanciful interpretations of what that 666 six might be. Uh, the best interpretation that I have heard that I believe to be correct uh, is the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is simply this. It's the, it's the mark of an ungodly life. I read that a number of years ago and I thought I think that's spot on because it's easy to see, isn't it? Everywhere you go, you can see that. I mean, you can clearly, clearly see that. Ungodly living is easy to spot. And conversely, the wedding garment is a godly life in Christ Jesus. And that also is, is pretty easy to spot, isn't it? I mean, you can just tell. You ever go somewhere on a trip or something, you bump into somebody who's a believer and immediately you have this kinship between you? Have you ever had that experience? You don't even know the person that you're talking to, but you love them. You can talk with them all day. And you have this commonality between you. And the commonality is what? It's Christ Jesus. I think that's the wedding garment. 
I think it's the wedding garment. It's a change that expresses itself with a Christian temperament. You know, it's, it symbolizes a heart that leans not on its own understanding, but trusts Christ uh, in every area of life. You know, it's a, it's a heart that is richly adorned with the grace of Christ, and it, it's a heart that loves Jesus and lives to please Him. Um, that's the wedding garment. I think uh, uh, that helps us answer the other questions that we have. Hopefully that, that wedding garment is starting to come in view, but I think as we wrestle with our remaining questions, that wedding garment will come even into clearer view. Um, you know, if we move to our second question, we ask, all right, okay, if this is what the wedding garment is, the wedding garment is a life that's truly been changed uh, by the grace of God. Uh, how can we know uh, if we have this wedding garment? Uh, and what could be more important than that? Uh, I, I hope that if we've learned anything from the parable, we've learned that we've got to have a wedding garment. When the king enters into the uh, community of the, uh, of the ceremony, he, he, he immediately spots a man who's without the wedding garment, uh, and he is pitched out. Uh, if we learn anything from the parable, we learn that we have to have a wedding garment. Um, we, we might even ask ourselves a, 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 another question. Uh, how did the man get in there in the first place without a wedding garment? I think we should consider that just for a moment. Um, how did he get in there in the first place without a wedding garment? If we go back to the parable, we see the servants are they're, they're out gathering. Uh, and, and the servants that are out gathering are simply the uh, followers, disciples of, of Christ who are sharing the gospel. Uh, and as the gospel is shared, people respond in various ways. Some are indifferent, some are hostile, but some take us up on it, don't they? And they come into the church. All right. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, can we see the hearts of one another? Uh, we, we can't, can we? I, I would think that this man that's in the, that's in the wedding ceremony without a wedding garment, I, I would think if there was any kind of outward uh, show of, um, of, of infidelity in him, I think that the servants that were faithfully gathering for the Lord would have called him and said, listen, you know, your behavior here, your talk, your, uh, the way you're conducting yourself is really out of step with the gospel. Can we talk about this? I think that we'd be faithful to do that. Uh, a, a loving pastor will do that. You, you know, you, it, just seems, it seems to be a miss here. I mean, you're professing. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's something we have to do. We have to exercise caution when we do. But, you know, it's just, there's just a miss here between... You know, your life and, and what you're professing. You know, I, I would think that they would have done that um, and hopefully would have resolved that issue before the king come in. Uh, but it, that's not the case, is it? And what we have here, really, the first lesson is that we can't see another person's heart. Uh, we simply can't see another person's heart. And, uh, you know, uh, unless there's good reason, we should give one another the benefit of the doubt here. Uh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> uh, the second lesson in this is uh, uh, we're not going to get past the eyes of the Lord. You know, we're really not going to get past the eyes of the Lord. Uh, we can get past one another. And we can, we, can, we can even fool ourselves. We can fool the elders. We can fool uh, our fellow believers uh, with our false professions. But we're not going to get past the Lord. Psalm 139, 
verse 3 tells us that the Lord is acquainted with all of our ways. And in that great psalm, the very next verse, uh, we're told that the Lord knows our words before we even speak them. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord knows what I'm going to say here in a few moments, even before uh, I've even said it. So when the Lord comes into the banquet, he's not blinded by the crowd. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. I think this calls for, for careful self-examination here. Um, so again, back to our question, how can we know if, uh, if we're in the wedding garment or not? I, I, we could preach a whole series of sermons on that very subject. And I'm going to leave you with four marks here. And please, we could preach a series of sermons on each one of these marks, but... Uh, these might be things you want to jot down. Uh, there are four of them that I'm going to share with you. And I would say that those who have the wedding garment are those who have been touched by God's grace. That's really important. Been touched by God's grace. These are not graces that are produced within on our own. These are gifts that we get from God. But the first one is uh, those who have been touched by the grace of God this way hate their sins. I mean, there's a hatred of sin. When Jesus is preparing his disciples uh, for, for his departure, he promises them that he will not leave them as orphans. He promises to send the Holy Spirit to them. And one of the things that he promises the Holy Spirit will do is convict the world of their sins, of righteousness and judgment, right? John 16 and verse 8. And that is really one of the uh, first works uh, uh, unfortunately, in many gospel presentations, we skip that part. Um, we skip clear over it. And uh, we go right to the good news. And we give these presentations and they fall completely flat, don't they? We, we, we tell people about a Savior. There's a one who's come to, come to save us. And, and really, I mean, many folks today have no clue what they need saved from. Because we skip the bad news. I mean, I've been... been and we, we like, kind of like skipping that bad news, don't we? I mean, it's more fun to give the good news than it is the bad news. You get a lot less uh, 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 grief uh, sharing the good news than you do the bad news. Uh, uh, but here's the bad news. The bad news is uh, we're rotten to the core. The very best of us is rotten completely to the core. You know, the world's creed is, you know, I know I'm not perfect, I'm only human. And there are some that are so proud that they'll even consider themselves to be humble and without vanity. Uh, if you consider yourself humble and without vanity, the idea of a Savior is ridiculous. What do I need saved from? I need health insurance. I need a good job. Uh, you know, I need rid of this political party or that political party. I, you know... Uh, this is what we need. No, no, actually, no. Um, you're rotten clear to the bone. And one of these days, you're going to find yourself being compared to the straight edge of God's complete holiness. And what are you going to do? You ain't going to be fussing over health insurance. You're not going to be fussing over this political party or that political party. What are you going to do? Well, those who have been... Touched by God's grace, those who are wearing the wedding garment, they don't talk like this, not at all. Um, the grace of God has so touched their heart that they see their sinfulness. Uh, they see their sinfulness. And this next point is really important. 
They see their sinfulness as sinfulness against God. When you talk with people and you counsel people, it's not uncommon for people to see their sinfulness. But it is a little bit less common for them to see their sinfulness against God. You see, you need to be looking for that vertical dimension. Because wherever God's hands have been, that vertical dimension is going to be present. We're going to see ourselves as sinners against a holy and loving God. And that produces grief. It produces grief uh, to where we begin to grieve and we begin to mourn over the sins that we've committed against our holy and loving God. And that's, the, that's where the hatred of sin comes into play. And just a word of caution here, I mean, this grief and this mourn, the intensity of it varies from person to person. I don't want anyone sitting here this morning thinking, you know, I don't grieve as much as Ernie grieves. I don't grieve as much as Jim grieves. Maybe I don't have the wedding garment. Um, this grief will vary from person to person. In church history, John Bunyan was an example of someone who grieved terribly over his sins. And uh, he preached in churches uh, to people who didn't grieve like that over their sins, but did indeed grieve over their sins and were also indeed covered with the same robe of righteousness as John Bunyan was covered with. So this is going to vary in intensity, uh, but it should be present. We, we've got a God that's inviting us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. How can we sin against him? And when we think about that, that should be creating grief in our hearts. Jesus put it this way, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? So that's the first mark, is grief. And sorrow for having sinned against God leads us to another God-given gift. And by the way, that grief is a gift, by the way. And it leads to another gift, which is repentance. That's turning from sin to live in a way that's uh, pleasing to the Lord. And this leads really to my next mark. The second thing is those who are grieving over their sin find relief for that grief in the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we see our spiritual bankruptcy, we begin to see our spiritual bankruptcy, and we realize something has to be done about this, that's part of the work. That's part of God's opening up our eyes and opening up our ears. That's part of the work. But the other part of God's work is also to open up our eyes so that we can see the brilliance and the majesty and the wonder of Christ's righteousness that's being offered to us in place of our own filthy rags. And those who are wearing the wedding garment obviously understand that because they've discarded the filthy rags of their self-righteousness. They've discarded the filthy rags uh, of their sinfulness so that they could take on that perfect robe of righteousness that Jesus is offering in the gospel. Does that make sense? You're not going to do that if you don't realize it. You know, as, as long as we, we think we're just a little holy club here and you know, we think that you know, all is well, we say a few prayers, sing a few songs, uh, grab a bite to eat and all is going to be well. I mean, we're not going to reach for these kinds of things. But, uh, but when the hand of God comes and touches us, everything's all together different, isn't it? We've got to say, whoa, wait a second here. What, what's happening? I'm rotten clear to the bone. Yeah, you're rotten clear to the bone. None of us even understand the depths of our rottenness. What are we going to do about it? Well, here's, this, here's, here's what you do about it. The perfect righteousness of Christ that's being offered to you. We take it. And we discard of our righteousness and we take uh, the righteousness of Christ. The third thing is that we live to please God through Christ. Those who are wearing the wedding garment live to please God through Christ. That's how you can identify them. 
That can be faked. We can be fooled. Uh, but God can't be fooled there. And that speaks to the motivation for living to please uh, God through Christ. What is the motivation for pleasing the Lord? It's thankfulness for what He's done. Uh, it's because we don't want to displease Him any further. It's because we love Him. We don't want to displease people that we love. Uh, we, none of us want to do that, do we? No. So we live to please God through Christ, and that leads to our last, our last thing, that we love Christ and we love His church. 1 John 3.14 puts it this way. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. Love for the church. I, I hope that we're all here this morning because we love one another. I hope that's why we're here. I hope even more than that, uh, that we're here because we, because we love Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of things about me that are quite unlovable. So if you're not here because you love me, I'll, I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, just as long as you're here because you love Jesus. Just as long as we're here because we love Jesus. So um, if we... If we search our hearts and we find remnants of these things that I've talked about, hatred of sin, uh, 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 relief of that hatred in the finished work of Christ, uh, uh, living to please God in Christ and loving Jesus in His church, if we see seeds of that in our hearts, we can be pretty rest assured that we're in the wedding garment. Uh, but if we look into our hearts and we find that that's missing, what do we do? What do we do to answer that last question? Uh, Jesus has already answered that question all the way back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. In those famous words, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will do what? You know the verse. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. That starts to make sense now, doesn't it? Hopefully it's making sense. I mean... When we're tormented over our sins and we're experiencing all that grief over our sins, I mean, the most natural thing for us to do is try to shape ourselves up. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, it's going to be like a do-it-yourself kind of thing here. I'm going to, you know, I've done a lot of bad things, but now I'm going to do a bunch of good things and I'm going to make up for the bad things. That's the idea of being heavy laden. No, that's not what we do. We decide, we, if we discover we're not in the wedding garment, we got to come to Jesus. And those filthy racks. <laughs> Let him undress you. Don't be shy. Let him undress you. And let him dress you. Let him clothe you with his perfect righteousness. What do we say in response to this? I'm always lost for words in response to this. I really don't know what to say. We just praise God um, for this wedding supper. Praise God for the invitation to it. Praise God that we're going to get to see the king. And praise God that he's provided the appropriate clothing for us. That he's fitted us for this, this great occasion that will last for all eternity. Heavenly Father, Lord, I really don't know what to say. I 
just do we just do our best it seems that there are no words that could describe oh lord these great things fill our hearts with them to the brim lord that our hearts would not take any more uh, for we know oh lord you could do that through all eternity and not run out prepare us oh lord clothe us in this wonderful beautiful garb of righteousness Clothe us, O Lord, in the righteousness of Christ. So clothe us in Christ, O Lord, that all you see in us is Christ himself. And I pray, O Lord, that uh, you would do this work very liberally and very generously uh, in the lives of our church and community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.